This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Hi folks, Mark Lautenschlager here, just finishing up the edit on part four of A Guided Tour of Holy Week. We're picking up today where we left off yesterday. Sam and I had gotten through Jesus's evening in Gethsemane, the trial overnight, and reached the point where Pilate had sent him to be crucified. We'll pick up at that same place today as we go through the events surrounding the crucifixion. I hope that you enjoy A Guided Tour of Holy Week, part four. So when Pilate hands him over then to be crucified, what happens at that point? So at this point, he is made to carry a cross. So they would lay this beam across his shoulders um, that he's going to be fastened to eventually. Now, would he carry the entire cross or just the cross beam? Typically, a criminal would be forced to carry the the horizontal part of the cross. um, And they believe that, you know, Jesus would have had to have walked a third of a mile uphill from where the Praetorium was to go to the hill of Golgotha. And so there was... Even even that the horizontal beam, you know, probably weighed somewhere near a hundred pounds, and he's too weakened to carry that. So he can't remember. He's lost a ton of blood. His entire body is shredded. So any part of his body that he's carrying this beam on has exposed nerves, has exposed muscles. Every, anything he did would have been excruciating for this this entire journey. Mm-hmm. And so as he's making his way out of the city, the, the pilgrims are all coming in at this point. It's, it's time for the nine o'clock sacrifice, which everybody came to. And so he's too weakened to carry it at this point. And so the Roman soldiers grab this man from the crowds who's called Simon of Cyrene. And it says they seize him and they force him to carry this cross behind Jesus. And so Jesus is walking in front, Simon is carrying the the crossbar behind him, and everybody who's walking into the city of Jerusalem and sees this mutilated, uh, disfigured body um, are stunned. The Bible says in, in Gospel of Luke, it says a large number of people followed after him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. So it's not like the whole city is glad to see him suffer. Among the people that are coming in at 9 a.m., a lot of them are grief-stricken. Mm. Mark, in his account of it, records that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Do we know anything about them from later? Uh, actually, yeah. And, and Romans 16, I, the reason why it tells you the name of his sons is the sons are watching. They're watching their dad, which no doubt this would have been terrifying because the Romans were so cruel, you know, I'm sure they feared that their father would be caught up in this and actually put to death or, you know, suffer somehow. So this is terrifying for them, but they watch their father carrying this crossbeam behind Jesus. Now, there's something to that. One of Jesus's teachings is, you know, take up your cross and follow after me. Well, this is something that Simon of Cyrene literally does. He's carrying the Lord's cross behind him. And his two sons are watching this. And in Romans 16, 
Paul, at the end of the letter, says, Greet Rufus, one of the sons who's chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. And so this family um, that on that day was brought into something that they didn't want to be a part of was seriously shaped and formed through participating in the sufferings of Jesus to where they became leaders in the church to follow. Hmm. Because you have to imagine that, and you know, from what we know of the Romans, you have to imagine that it's not like they stopped and said, all right, all right, show of hands, who wants to carry this? This guy can't do it. Anybody? Any right. volunteers? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no. And, nor did they come over to Simon in the crowd and say, you there, you look like you're sturdy. Would you mind? Would you mind helping us with this? You, don't, you know they didn't do that. You yeah. know that they cast their eyes on the crowd. They saw somebody who looked strong enough to carry this heavy crossbeam, and they grabbed him from the crowd and dragged him over and said, carry that. Yeah. So it would have been terrifying to the children and to, the, to his family that watched that. Yeah, yeah would this would have been seared into their memory yeah. for the rest of their lives. They would not have forgotten this day. It, what occurs to me when I think about this beam is the weight of it, you know? Again, this is this this weight of this burden that Jesus is being asked to bear and to carry. It's like it's he's being crushed by this again. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think there's, you know, again, no accident that this was such a heavy uh, burden to carry. This would have taken a little bit of time. They're not moving very quickly. How far was it from the city out to the Golgotha? They estimate that it would have been about 650 meters or a third of a mile to go from the Praetorium where, you know, Pilate and the the soldiers whipped him to go through the streets of Jerusalem and up the hill of Golgotha. But he'd have been carrying this 100-pound beam, you know, for that distance. You know, and it's also – it's going to be uphill, right? I mean, they're going up to the hill, right? Right. So it's not only 100 pounds and it's not only you've been – you know, you've been whipped, but we're making you walk uphill. Uh, just a tremendous exertion to that point. Now, Golgotha, it's, is it Golgotha or Golgotha? I've heard it pronounced both ways. How would you say it as the, as the history? I know history? what you mean either way. Okay. All right. So Golgotha was... I'd say Golgotha. Golgotha? Okay. Golgotha was the place of the skull. What was the significance of that place other than just it's where we took people to be crucified? So a lot of people think Golgotha, which literally means the place of the skull when it's translated. And if you go back to one of the most most famous victories of the Old Testament when David defeated Goliath, we're told that he cuts off his head and he takes it and he buries it somewhere in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of people who who believe that Golgotha is the place where uh, David buried Goliath from Goth, where he buried his skull. Huh. That's interesting. There's probably reasons why you can't find the skull of a very large man over there at this point, but it always, you know, I find, now the first thing that occurs to me is, did anybody ever go look for the skull? You know, it would have been big. It would have been a large skull. It would have had a dent in the middle of its forehead. You know? Hey, there you go. That'd be yeah. kind of fun if they found that. Yeah, that would be kind of fun if they found it. So now we come to the foot of the cross. Do you feel like there was probably a good crowd there or was it just a few people? Yeah, so a lot of times when we think of Golgotha, we think of it as, you know, somewhere that's way far outside of the city and a more rural place, but it's it's just outside the city wall. So it's right alongside of a road. I mean, people would have been looking up on top of this hill. There would have been a lot of people just by nature of what was going on in Jerusalem at the time passing by. So it's not this isolated place where only a few people are. Um, so there would have been a significant crowd that was looking at him. When when this was going on, 
that's interesting too also because you do you do tend to think of it as well he speaks to mary and he speaks to the disciples and obviously we know the roman soldiers are there but this idea that it was being done in a very public way just outside the city and that all these people would have been passing by um yeah no romans did not crucify people in quiet places yeah. they they very deliberately crucified people alongside roads on hills lifted up where everybody could see what happens to anybody who stands against Rome. They put him on the cross, it says, at the third hour. So that would have been, what, 9 a.m.? Is that the So at 9 a.m., he goes on to the cross, which, you know, is when everybody's doing their morning sacrifice, which there's an irony to this. Yes. Um, You know, they're offering up their morning sacrifices, asking for mercy from God, when outside the walls of the city, God is hanging on a cross to extend that mercy, even as they've demanded he be crucified. Hmm. Um, There's so many wild things like that. Um, you know, he, it's, it's God being crucified for blasphemy. Let that sink in. Um, there, there's so much about this that is upside down. But, yeah, at 9 o'clock, everybody's, you know, offering up their sacrifices and the morning sacrifice and offering up their morning prayers. And Jesus is beginning to agonize on the cross. The interactions that he has there are some of the more famous, you know, the, t- the, the interaction he had with the two, uh, it says thieves that were crucified alongside mm-hmm. of him, the interaction that he would then have with Mary and with John. Um, I, first, I, w- I guess I want to talk about these, the, the two thieves. Um, the one guy begins by mocking Jesus. He begins to, he begins to hurl insults at him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the first thing that occurs to me is, if I'm being crucified, I, the fact that I'm feeling like it's okay to be taunting the guy next to me is pretty ridiculous. You know, it's like I'm being killed here myself, you know, so I'm supposed to, is it going to make me feel any better to look at the guy next to me and say, hey, 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 you know, what are you in for? You know, that kind of thing. It, that, that whole process seems odd to me that yeah. this guy would think now is the time for me to break out the insults and throw it at this guy who's suffering here alongside of us. But he does that. And then his, his, the other guy, the other companion, says, leave him alone. We deserve right. our fate. This guy's done nothing wrong. Yeah, so the, one of the criminals hurls insults at Jesus, and there's, a, there's an element of, of panic and desperation to it. So it's not pure mocking. He says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So... I mean, if you understood the the agony that's going on in the actual torment of crucifixion, there's never a rest. It's not like you get used to hanging on these nails. Um, It it would have been unbelievably excruciating, and I think he is willing to do anything. And on the, the minute hope in his mind that this really is the Messiah who holds power, he's furious that he's not doing anything with it and so he's mocking him out of anger yeah he wants jesus to do something for him yeah i mean if you really are him move do something right um and so when he does it he mocks and becomes angry and it says the other criminal comes up and says do you do you not fear god since you're under the same sentence but there's there's this beautiful formula where you get down to the essential elements for salvation here, 
where the thief says, you know, we are punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is the simplest example of salvation, I think, that's offered in the scriptures. You have you have this guy, this thief on the cross, who recognizes, I deserve this. There's a humility coming and recognizing that he has something to repent of. He's poor in spirit. He knows that he's done wrong. But then he acknowledges the goodness of Christ. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he just says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is... And, to say that to somebody who's hanging on a cross is kind of ridiculous. If you stop and think about it, he's this guy's going to die. Jesus is going to die, and yet he's looking at him saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which means I anticipate that you are God. You are going to conquer death. You are the savior of the world. You're going to defeat death. Remember me when you do that. And so in that, you've got these these three things It's that equal salvation. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's recognizing you deserve punishment. Like you're, you're a sinner. You need a savior. You're in desperate shape. Recognizing the goodness of God who does not deserve that, but then acknowledging that he triumphed over death, that he has the power over the resurrection and throwing yourself to the mercy of him who has the power over death. That's salvation. That's it. He doesn't get down from the cross and go lead a Bible study or help old ladies cross the street. He can't do any good works. He's literally immobilized on a cross with nothing but a past that's wretched. He can't do anything except express his need of mercy and trust in Jesus to deliver him from death. And and for Jesus, that's enough. That's comforting to me. Yeah, it is. It's just like I said yesterday, or the last time, I say yesterday, the last time, and our last, that felt like Peter was the apostle whose story was included to make the rest of us feel okay about ourselves. Like, he, <laughs> yeah. you know, he denied Jesus three times, and yet Jesus restored him. Um, and here we have this thief who... He has nothing to offer Jesus except his need for a savior. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's the only thing that he's, you know, he's acknowledging his own sin. He's recognizing God being sinless, and he knows that he needs a savior, and that's what he brings to Jesus. I need you to save me, and he does. You know, yeah. and I so I think that's also it is another one of the things that's included for for those of us who sometimes think there's just no way I can make God happy with me. There's no way I can please. No, no. It doesn't have to do with whether you can make God happy or please God with what you do. It's that he is infinitely pleased in his son, and that extends to you. Um, I also think that uh, when Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus didn't say to him, today you'll be with me in a sort of homeostasis, (laughs) and I'll wake you back up when we get to Venus, you know, or whatever, you know, so we're going to put you in suspended animation because the spaceship is taking a long time to travel. Uh, It's (laughs) nothing like that. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, So then Jesus turns his attention uh, from the cross. He, He turns his attention to... His mother, right? Is that the that's the is that the next of the statements that happens? Is when he speaks to Mary, or am I getting this out of order? Now? 
So when the, when the Romans put you up on a cross, you didn't die, usually. You didn't die from blood loss. Some people would stay crucified actually for days on a cross. And the way that they perfected this torture is when they drove these, you know, seven or nine-inch spikes through your wrists, they would hammer them sideways on the other side of the wood so that you were pinned there. But they rested the nail on what was called the large sensory motor median nerve. And... If you've ever, you know, had a nerve exposed to touch like a toothache when you, you know, eat something hot or cold and it hits a nerve, it gets your attention in a hurry. Right. And so these these nails are literally resting on nerves in both hands and also on the motory nerve and your feet. And so any movement is sending fiery jolts of pain through your body. But if you relax on the cross and you let your chest go out you cannot breathe normally and so you begin to suffocate and there's nothing more panicky than to feel like you're suffocating imagine being under a pool you know underwater and you're unable to get a breath you will do anything and so you will force yourself into the torture of pulling your body back up to the cross to get a breath and then you slink back down and so you alternate between the panic of suffocation and the the excruciating pain of these these nails, your motory nerves resting on these nails. Mm. And so anytime you're called to speak, your breath in that time period is extremely precious to you. And so all of these statements come with, with, with agony to be able to muster them up. Hmm. It says, and you said that he made seven statements, and of course seven is a significant number, I think, anytime it occurs in Scripture. It's the number of completion, it's the number of God as opposed to the number of man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's in, I think that it, that by the fact that he made seven statements, it's, a, it's an indication that, that these are significant things that he's saying. Mm-hmm. I agree. So what were the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross? Um, so the first one that he offers we find in Luke twenty three thirty four, and this is you know they're tormenting him, all the people are mocking him, and and Jesus cries out, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Um, so even in the middle of his agony, and what, one of the things you'll find with these statements is he's remarkably selfless, even in the midst of his suffering. You know he's he's not crying out for himself. He's crying out for mercy to those that are tormenting him and that's his nature and then you jump forward you know the next comment that he's going to make we just talked about it's to the thief who's right next to him and it's today you will be with me in paradise well here again you know father forgive them it's talking to this thief who's next to him you will be with me in paradise and the next one is woman behold thy son and then to John, behold thy mother. And so he's commissioning John to take care of Mary. And so here he is. And, and we don't know what happened to Joseph. You know, I'm, we're assuming that he probably is, is died and Mary is now a widow. But in, in his, from the cross, he's caring for his mother and making sure that she's got arrangements of somebody to, to love her. Um, and so all these statements are coming out. Uh, concerned with other people and then the the last four are kind of very quick toward the end of the crucifixion as you're clo- getting close to to three o'clock when he's about to die um, he offers up this statement my god my god why hast thou forsaken me 
And, you know, for a lot of us, we look at that and go, oh, my goodness, like, that's that's jarring. Did Jesus lose his faith? And no, he didn't. And there's a, a couple of reasons why we know that. One, he's referring, my God, my God. He's still attributing to his father all authority. Um, but he repeats the name, which we know from ancient Eastern cultures, whenever you repeat a title, it's, it's, it's a symbol of affection, you know, like when he's, he'll say Mary, Mary, or, or all throughout the scripture, when God repeats somebody's name, it's, it's a sign of affection. Um, and so when he says, my God, my God, there's a heartbreak. There's a, I'm longing to be with you. I want you desperately. Why have you forsaken me? And he's pointing to Psalm 22. And one of the rabbinical traditions is, you know, you hear that the beginning verse of a psalm represents the entirety of the psalm. And so if you want to know what Jesus means by asking the Psalm 22 verse 1, when he says that, you don't just stop with the question because verse 1 implies the rest of the psalm. Um, and so go read Psalm 22, and it's... It's a play-by-play, essentially, of the crucifixion and mm. jumping into the heart of Jesus when he's going through this crucifixion. It's an extremely faithful response in the midst of this. But I love the fact that God gives us permission. Here's the son hanging on a cross, and God at this point has turned his face away because of our sin. And Jesus at this point is experiencing utter alienation. You know, we perceive sometimes that God has turned his face from us. That's never the case. For Jesus, this was actually the case. He literally, in this moment, was totally alone so that you and I will never be alone. Hmm. Hmm. Then he says, I thirst. Um, And there's significant meaning to this as well. You know, he had gone through his life, you know, talking about how those who come to him will never thirst for righteousness. And the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So when Jesus talks about thirst or with the woman at the well, right, I'll give you living water and you'll never thirst again. Whenever he's talking about thirst, he's talking about this eternal satisfaction that can come from God alone. God is going to satisfy and quench your every thirst. And so get this. This is so beautiful to me. Here you have the Son of God who eternally had been in perfect relationship with the Father, who knew what it was like to be totally satisfied in the Trinity, to never thirst. At this moment, now God himself hanging on a cross is crying out, I thirst. I thirst for righteousness. I'm thirsting to be satisfied by my Father and by the Spirit. I want that relationship again. For the first time, I am thirsty for something that I can't get. Why? So that in the Beatitudes, his statement is fulfilled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When he cries, I, when he cries, I thirst, it's so that we can be satisfied so that that hunger that we have to be with God and to to find him and to find our satisfaction, that is now our reality because he thirsted. And then finally, uh, the last two statements that are are right next to each other, he says, it is finished. That is a massive, massively profound statement. And the Greek, it's tetelestai, which 
can literally they found old uh, papyrus where that was stamped or written on it uh, and then to tell us die it was on like ledgers or you know a, an invoice or something and it literally meant meant the debt is paid in full and so when he says it is finished it's communicating there is a debt out there that my suffering what i'm doing on the cross has paid in full it's gone and what that debt is is the sin that i bring to the table the sin that you bring to the table jesus has taken all of it and he has he's consumed the cup of wrath he is he's extinguished the justice of god that was reserved for all of my shortcomings and my rebellion and my selfishness he has paid every bit of my debt to God, and it is finished. There's that, which means, by the way, there is nothing left for you to pay. It's finished. So stop whipping yourself in front of God as though you know your your guilt or your your means and your efforts are going to somehow pay for this. No, it's been paid for. You're free. You, you're you're pardoned now. And then finally, he quotes the psalmist where he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And that is the ultimate expression of faith. Because who is it? As Jesus has been hanging on the cross here, he's suffered the wrath of God. He's, he's suffered the crushing reality that the Father has turned his face away. The Father has given him over to suffer all these things. And even in the midst of this agony, even when he doesn't sense any comfort coming from the Father, what does he say? Father, into your hands, whatever you do with me, I trust you. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. And then he breathes his last, and he's he's died. Mm. And that that happened, I guess, before 3 p.m., or right close to 3 p.m., Right at 3 p.m. Right at 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it says at the ninth hour, which would be 3, 3 p.m. Okay. Now, it's recorded that um, the, the Romans were, were coming out to break the legs of the people, of, the, of those that were hanging on the cross, and then they right. discovered that Jesus was already dead. The time that he chose, I mean, it says that he, that he basically, I guess one translation says he gave up the ghost, gave up his spirit, you know, that, mm-hmm. he, uh, that he decided you know, when it was time for him to die. Um, these, uh, that's all being, all of these things, like a lot of these are being done to yeah. fulfill prophecies from the Old Testament. So, I mean, there's a... Um, oh, man. Th- Just even that last breath, it's one of my favorite pictures. You know, how does humanity come to life in the first place, Right. It comes when God breathes. Mm -hmm. You know, God breathes into Adam and Eve and humanity comes to life, right? And so here's the idea. Now God has died. And in his death, how's his death described? He breathed once more. And what happens? All of humanity has new life. Hmm. It's a new creation. It's beautiful. In the death of God, there's a new creation for man. Hmm life from death that's that's his specialty mm-hmm. um you know it's it's uh it, this is one of those in another lifetime sort of anecdotes but uh the the band that i was in in the late 1970s and early 1980s um called Kylus, and we recorded a couple of um albums one of which was called brand new ground we recorded it in 1979 um 
and that I actually have a, a digitized, although not very good, copy of. Um, it's the, the, somebody digitized it from a tape, and the quality is kind of iffy. But the second one that we were working on in 1981 and never finished um, was the actual title of it was Tetelestai. Hmm. Um, that was the, the idea behind it was that we were creating what we perceived to be a, a sort of musical presentation of the passion. Um, and there was one point where we had this drum solo that was just cacophony. You know, it was just this enormously, uh, it was a, it was a pretty impressive drum solo, but it was like this, this, these heavy, heavy drums and this, this totally chaotic sound. And then, you know, when it stopped, then the, that the word was shouted to Telestai. This idea that was the that was the end of it. It was finished, mm. and we had a lot. One of the songs on the album was called Barabbas, and we had a, there was a whole lot. The whole album was about the passion and the crucifixion, um, and it was something that we perceived it. Meaning, we in the band, we when we were recording it, we perceived it as being this almost exultant cry that. Mm. You know that that Jesus let out that was that it was not a, it wasn't like he's saying it is finished, but yeah. it was this it is finished. You know this this shout uh, yeah, sort it of says thing. that actually yeah yeah and one of the reasons why the Roman guard marveled is it says that you know he he gave a great shout. Well, people who are crucified don't shout loudly; they can barely catch any breath at all. To so. To shout loudly is really defiant of the whole process of crucifixion. And then the centurion so right. was moved to say, this was the Son of God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that if I was John or the disciples that were there that were watching this, it would have to be something that would be both incredibly, incredibly sad. And yet at the same time, I would imagine that just that last moment, you would have had to have the sense that there's something more here. You know, that it's not that he shouted out, it's finished, but it doesn't mean this isn't over. Uh, And it wasn't. Um, You know, this is the this was the either the low point or the high point. I don't know how you look at it. Jesus had died at three o'clock and they they would have brought him down from the cross, um, but they wouldn't have been able to prepare him for burial. Am I right? That's the the timing of that. It was too late in the day that they had to like set him aside or something. Well, they came with massive, I think we're told Nicodemus comes with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And so they do a rush job wrapping his body for burial. But they have to get his body in the tomb buried, sealed, everything by nightfall on Friday. But, you know, when you're talking about watching this thing, it's it's when Jesus cries out in a loud voice, that would have sent serious <laughs> doubts end of the mind of the Roman centurion. Uh, but that was also met with this very strange eclipse that we're told happened from, from noon to the th- to 3 o'clock where the land just goes into some kind of darkness. And it's not, it's not a solar eclipse. We know that because that can't happen during Passover because of the way the moon is functioning. It can't be a solar eclipse. So some kind of a strange obscuring of the sun is happening. Everything goes dark. We don't know if it's a terrible storm or what it might be. But then right after he dies, we're told that the earth begins to quake and the the temple veil is actually ripped from top to bottom. And that is amazingly significant. Even even the time when this happens, you know, every day during this time, the Jews 
offered up prayers at nine o'clock in the morning, which is significant because that's when Jesus goes to the cross. But they also offered prayers every day at three o'clock. And these were called the Tamids, the Tamid sacrifices. And they offered a priest every day would have to go and stand in front of the altar of incense right near this veil. And at three o'clock, they were called to go in and offer um, the prayers that was called the Shmone Eshrei. And you know what that prayer was all about? There were a whole bunch of different things that they would repeat. But here's some of the things that they were praying for at the time that the temple veil would have torn. This priest is standing in the temple praying, speedily cause the offspring of your servant David to flourish and let him be exalted by your saving power for we wait all day long for your salvation. Another one of the prayers, who resembles you, a king who puts to death and restores to life and causes salvation to flourish, and you are certain to revive the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who revives the dead. These are the prayers that the priests who were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, that's what they are praying when Jesus dies and this temple veil is torn from top to bottom. Just great irony. And on that temple veil, the imagery that's going on on the temple veil, you had two cherubim. This is the commandments first given to Moses when Moses is told how to to craft the tabernacle veil. You were to put two cherubim angels. Well, what does that make us think of? It makes us think of the Garden of Eden going back all the way to Genesis 3 at the fall when God removed Adam and Eve from his presence. He stationed cherubim to guard them from going back into the garden to be able to eat from the tree of life. So cherubim were always the guardians where man could not come back into the presence of God. They could not take from the tree of life. And so here, this veil with the cherubim angels on it is ripped open and the Holy of Holies now stands wide open. This was some place that only one person, one time a year, could go into the presence of God and that was with much fear and trembling. But now that Jesus has died, he's taken our sin upon himself and given us righteousness and now the barrier this this temple veil the cherubim have been ripped apart and now this thing that's separating us from the presence of god is no more all of that is very instructive very intentional and now we have access to god that's what that is teaching and so when the priests see that when the roman soldiers see that when rumor mills start going around about what has just happened all of jerusalem is buzzing about what just happened I would imagine it would have been the kind of thing that was very difficult to ignore. And one of the things that's kind of interesting, you go into the early the early, you know, centuries following the death of Jesus and you have these historians that are writing back and forth. One of them's name is Thallus, the other one is named Julius Africanus and they're writing trying to make sense of what could have possibly caused that darkness. They're not debating that darkness happened. Uh, but uh, Julius Africanus writes, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. And the whole point of the reason why he's writing is he's saying it could not have been a lunar eclipse. So how do we make sense of this? Um, and it's just kind of interesting, going back to people that were in that day, they're trying to figure out what could have caused this darkness. Hmm. Um, and recently they found, geologists have found evidence of a of a massive earthquake that had to have happened in that region, which is right on a fault line that had to have happened right within within the span of a decade that hits Jesus' crucifixion. That hmm. fault line experienced a massive earthquake. And so 
you look into history and you see, you know, that this isn't just Bible talk. Oh, let's let's add an earthquake. That'll make it more profound. Like, <laughs> you know, no, these things actually happen. Sure. So the Roman soldiers, we, we said earlier, they didn't break his legs. That was done to fulfill prophecy. But why was the why did they come out to look to break his legs in the first place? What was the what was the issue with he couldn't stay up there? So, so Jesus dies at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, right. and there is a rush to make sure that everybody's taken down from the crosses before the Sabbath begins. So, okay, so they couldn't, they couldn't take day, him down. They couldn't take him down from the cross once the Sabbath started. Correct, because the, they would have seen that as work. So they <laughs> have the Jewish Sabbath begins Friday night, and that, as soon as evening happens. Evening comes. That's the beginning of Sabbath. So they've got to get all these people down from the, their crosses prior to nightfall. So the Romans came and they would smash the the legs, the knees out from underneath them. Because remember, the only way that you could stay alive was playing this alternating game where you're, you know, lifting yourself up to catch a breath against the excruciating pain of those nails on on the nerves and your wrists and feet. And so when they smash the legs out, now you can't push yourself up anymore. It's too agonizing, and so people would suffocate rather quickly. But when they come to Jesus, they see that he's already dead. But to make sure that he's dead, they take the spear and they strike him under the ribs and puncture up into his heart. And we're told, you see lots of paintings where uh, you see a, a flow of blood and water that comes forth from his side. And medically, that that's that just means he's been dead a minute, and the blood has separated into blood and serum. But symbolically, so clear fluid and, and the blood platelets, but symbolically, the idea is out of him is coming the blood of atonement, but this water is emblematic of cleansing, like his sacrifice, his death has brought about sacrifice. And so when, when he's dead, they take him down from the cross, and you get these two characters, the two men that show up to help anoint Jesus' body for burial amidst all the women that were his disciples that were around the cross. They're pretty profound men. One of them is Joseph of Arimathea, and the other one is Nicodemus, who were both powerful Jews that at some point during their ministry had come to admire and appreciate and love Jesus. And so Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks permission to put Jesus' body in his own tomb, a brand new tomb, um, so that he could at least be honored in that way. And so Nicodemus wraps, who's uh, both members of the Sanhedrin, they wrap his body and myrrh and aloes. They anoint him for this burial. They put his body in the tomb and they seal the tomb with this massive cylindrical stone um, that weighed, uh, I think it's between three and four thousand pounds was the, the typical stones that sealed uh, tombs. This isn't something that somebody's going to be able to roll away by themselves. Um, and so from that point on, the heaviness sets in. Jesus is buried. He's dead. And all the hope of Israel, all the hope of his disciples and those that had heard him offer up promises, all those promises are now brought into question. The disciples pretty much went into hiding. Yeah, I mean, they were terrified. They were terrified, uh, you know, because their master had died and uh, they didn't believe that was going to happen. They weren't paying attention. Uh, Well, they were paying attention, but they weren't understanding. Uh, so 
and people were on the lookout. But you remember and when Peter denied Jesus for the third time, which is something that, that we didn't discuss, but when he denied him for the third time, you remember the crowd is saying, you were with him, you were with him. And Peter's terrified that he's going to be identified as a, as a disciple of Jesus because he knew he would then be put on a cross right next to Jesus. And so everybody's hiding because to identify as one of his disciples is a death sentence at this point. Mm-hmm. And we know that the uh, the preparations were done hurriedly because we, we read later on that uh, they were coming back the next morning to to finish preparations, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Well, on Sunday morning, on not Sunday the next morning. morning. So not the next on morning. Sunday morning. Right. Yeah, they come back. The women are coming to right. properly prepare him because that's, apparently the men did not do a good job which is what <laughs> makes sense <laughs> so and that's when but, they discover the uh, the empty tomb the empty tomb yeah and you know you look at this and you know you can get into the academic side of of the crucifixion and there's so many fascinating things that are going so much symbolism and the story has so many turns and there's so much unexpected things and it's really easy for us to enter into this season and think through the story as as Jesus versus the Jewish leaders or Jesus versus the Romans. And if you get there to where it's just academic, you'll miss the heart of what's going on here. Jesus was not put on a cross because of Jewish leaders. He was not put on the cross because of Pontius Pilate. Jesus went to a cross to redeem me of my sin and John Stott has this great line where he says you can't see the cross as something done for you until you come to terms with the fact that the cross was something done by you Jesus went to the cross to conquer and defeat and to pay for my sin (laughs) that was his motive Until I come to terms with the fact that I'm among the villains of this story, I am Barabbas. I am the thief on the cross. I am the one who shouted, may his blood be on us and our children. Like until I come to that point, I've failed to understand the gravity of what Jesus is doing for me. Well, we're going to let that stand as our last word. We encourage everybody to tune in uh, this Sunday morning at uh, 10 a.m. to our Easter at Home service. Obviously, these are very, very different times for the church uh, here in Florida and in America and around the world. Um, All of us are are being forced to remain apart, but we're going to come together uh, in a virtual service uh, on Sunday morning at 10 a.m., to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as as we come together for Easter. Um, what we're going to do with the podcast, folks, is uh, over the next few weeks, Pastor Sam and I are going to be looking at some of the elements of the resurrection. And you know, we're going to be looking back at it. There's, a, there's so much. There's so much rich mm-hmm. uh, symbolism and meaning in so many different aspects of the resurrection story itself. Um, that we thought that that might be the best way to do it. That, you know, we've gone through Holy Week up to the point of the crucifixion. Let's come together as a church to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, to celebrate Easter. And then over the next few weeks, uh, we'll have an opportunity to go back and talk about uh, the significance of these different aspects and parts of the resurrection. And 
we hope that you will find it as as uh, inspiring and as interesting as we do. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.